This is Nerve Radio. You're listening to the Ultimate Sports Podcast. Your one-stop shop for all your sporting news and discussion. Welcome back to the Ultimate Sports Podcast. After a few weeks off, we are back. Toby Foster, as always, joined myself, Sam H. And today, alongside us, is Frankie Rudland, editor of Nerve Sport and a boxing expert. I'm not too sure about expert. Maybe maybe armchair expert. <laughs> How are we doing, anyway? I'm not too bad, thank you. How are you, boys? Yeah, not too Very bad. Well. Very well. Not liking the cold creeping in. I hate it. <laughs> The coldest got... is Denver on record, they said. Yeah, it feels it. But we've got plenty of sport to keep us warm. As we're talking boxing, the return of crowds, which is where I've really noticed the cold. F1, horse racing, a big darts preview and the sports personality of the year. Boxing is where we'll start, though. And I think we're going to look at Dubois' fight after he quit in the 10th round against Joyce, who was a 3-1 to to win that. Going into that fight, Dubois was the heavy favourite, but he... Uh, took a knee in a different circumstance to essentially uh, save his sight, it seems. Yeah, it was, it was a bizarre one, wasn't it? I think at the time, it kind of felt, I think quitting was the word at the time. Everyone kind of looked at the manner in which he went out and it did, it did just seem like a bit of a whimper. He looked like he was in the corner um, and he didn't look particularly up for it when he was talking to his trainer. I think there was an element of him being a little bit stunned by the fact that Joyce took him well, was just basically eating everything that he had to throw at him. Um, if you think after them, like, huge early punches that that Joyce just kind of ate and kept on walking him down. I think there might have been an element behind the injury um, that he's a little bit disheartened as well. Um, And I don't know, I still, I I know it was, I know it was bad and obviously transpired that he took that nerve damage to his eye and and also a fractured eye socket. But I still think there was an element of him almost quitting and bowing out. I I don't think he was ready for, for what Joyce brought. I think this fight came way too soon for Dubois. He's been touted as being the next big thing in boxing, and that still might be true. He's only 21 years old, isn't he? So he's got a big career ahead of him, but this come too soon for him. Joyce was all over him, regardless of the injury, and it never looked like he was going to falter against him. We heard a so, lot about Dubois and his power, didn't we? And and them saying, you know, he's, he's going to be the most powerful man in boxing or whatever. It was interesting to hear Joe Joyce saying he'd felt power like that before and that Daniel Dubois wasn't anything special when it came to the actual power stakes. Yeah, I was, I was massively surprised by that, to be fair. But um, yeah, it was, it was kind of... Um, I'm not sure whether it was a cheap shot from Joyce or just kind of brutal honesty, but it seemed to kind of like disband uh, probably... Dubois' biggest weapon, like you wouldn't say he's a fantastic boxer. Um, he just kind of unleashes like these torrents of huge punches. Um, but yeah, like Joyce said, he, he he didn't really feel there was much behind him. But one thing that I was massively shocked at is after the fight, I think there was some um, some of the judges' scorecards uh, leaked, if you like, on Twitter. They had Dubois up. One of them had Dubois up by quite a few rounds, which, like it says, I don't agree with that at all. No, I didn't think he was the fighter that we've... Uh... We were expecting, obviously, this is the biggest fight he's had. I think Joyce has had his problems, though, in his career. I don't think he's ever been marketed particularly well, and he probably could have gone on to bigger fights than he has. He probably should have been at the stage of on the cusp of fighting someone like Dillian White a few years ago. That should have happened, but uh, hopefully he gets a chance now anyway. There's some interesting comments from Anthony Joshua on this as well. Uh, He says, if Daniel needs someone to speak to, he should call me. It's easy for people to criticise from outside the ring, but some people have been out of order. A lot of people, you know, making some quite, you know, outlandish comments about Dubois and what happened. And he said, uh, Daniel took a massive risk in taking that fight. They both knew the dangers. I hear people talking respectfully about tapping out in MMA fights. Then when a boxer stops because his eyeball is about to fall out, they call him a quitter. Daniel's time will come. I believe I will fight both him and Joyce. So they could be a couple of good uh, bouts to look forward to as well in the future. I mean, Absolutely. him and AJ would be would be a bit of a classic, wouldn't it? If they both just go in with a with their t- uh, typical swing for the hills approach, <laughs> we could see some absolute bombs getting landed from both sides. Um, that'd be good as well. Yeah, but I feel I don't know. I feel like maybe there was a bit of um. So had Joshua not lost to Ruiz, I think he might not have held that opinion. But I think that probably that loss and the backlash that he got after being kind of British boxing's golden child for quite a while probably gave him a little bit more humility when he was talking about Dubois after that. Because I think he probably experienced, like he said, pretty heavily what, what the kind of criticisms that Dubois got following on from, from the fight with Joyce. 
Yeah, I did see that obviously Dubois got a fair bit of criticism, but there was a lot of sympathy for him on social media, which is uh, was entirely different to when it happened to Kel Brook a few years back. And it's quite interesting to see how that changed. But I think that's a good point that AJ raises, how um, in MMA you can tap out and that's respectable and fine, but in boxing you pretty much have to go until you're laying on the canvas. Now, Toby, a few, I think it was about a year ago almost now, I remember you uh, got into a little heated argument over who was the best boxers. Where I think, if I remember rightly, you named your top three as uh, AJ, Andy Ruiz and Daniel Dubois. Do you still stand by that? Well, I think, you know, times move forward, don't they? And, and things <laughs> change and certain people have their views vindicated. But uh, no, I, I don't think I'd put Daniel Dubois in my top three anymore. I think that's probably... Um, probably going a bit too far. Who were the other two I said? Adrian a- Ruiz, I think. And Ruiz? Yeah. Oh, well, that, that was off the time, wasn't it? Because Ruiz was World Heavyweight Champion at yeah. the time. Obviously, he's not in the in the top three anymore. But um, no, I still I still think Anthony Joshua, pound for pound, is is the best of the bunch um, in, in that division. I, I'm not totally certain how long it will stay that way because I disagree with him. He talks about it being the best we've ever seen in British boxing. I, I don't think that at all. Uh, I think it's quite a weak division apart from the top two at the moment. You've got these ones coming up through and, and Dubois was meant to be the next big thing. And that now has, has stalled a little bit. Um, so I, I don't know how long it's going to be before somebody knocks AJ off his perch, but I still think he's number one for me. I know certainly our guest today will disagree with that statement. Otherwise, without a doubt. I'll let Frankie. I'll let you take this one away first. Yeah, I, I, you obviously know my opinion. We we had this this discussion last year, didn't we? I, I think Tyson Fury. Um, and I know you you think I've, I've got an undying love for Tyson Fury, but I, I do think he's, he's yeah. still by by far and away. I still think he's um the best heavyweight in that division. Um, and I think he showed that against Wilder because I think he he went in and faced Wilder. What, people would argue Wilder's at the peak of his powers and obviously he's made numerous excuses like the suit was too heavy that he walked into the ring with. Apparently Fury's gloves were full of lead or whatever, whatever the excuses were that he used. But I think he absolutely demolished um, a very good fighter that night. And um, I think he would probably do the same to Andy Joshua. I just think it's it's probably his boxing brain that sets him apart from the rest of the heavyweights in that division. Um, I don't think he's ever been taught a lesson like Anthony Joshua was where he's had to kind of go away after taking that loss to Ruiz and almost re-sculpt the way he he boxes Um, because he, like Dubai, kind of got found out was trying to go to war constantly with um, with different boxers and he's had to go away and I think we will see a different Anthony Joshua on Saturday night as well so I think currently it's Tyson Fury again that I might be proved wrong in in his next fight he might he might be humbled but for me he's, he's he's at the top just a couple of points for you. When you when you look at um, what happened with Wilder and Fury, do you think Fury, you talk about his boxing brain, isn't that all about following a game plan against certain fighters? As you said, not just trying to steamroller everybody, but actually having a plan and having a strategy. And he saw that uh, the strategy that he needed to, to beat Deontay Wilder. Isn't that going to be harder against uh, Anthony Joshua, who is a more all-rounded fighter, doesn't have a huge noticeable weak spot? Obviously, Andy Ruiz found something uh, just through raw power, I think, but uh, and speed. But... Is, is it going to be harder, you know, to find a game plan against him? And also the other thing, just on the defeat of Wilder by Fury, why aren't we having the rematch? Why aren't we having number three? We've, oh, I we've don't seen, want to see that. We've had two. And we've seen a world title change hands. And how long has it been? You know, I can't remember it. I mean, I'm not the biggest forward boxing, but I can't remember a world heavyweight title changing hands to a challenger, and then there not being a rematch. So I find that slightly odd. It, I think that is something that Wilder's obviously been outspoken about, that he wants that rematch. But from Fury's point of view, um, if he, well, say, for example, if, if Joshua goes and beats Pulev, then they're set up for a unification fight next year with Fury, which Fury might have that in mind. He might just be thinking if he bides his time, he could be the unified heavyweight champion. If, if like I say, Joshua gets through, takes the belt, and then obviously goes on, well, retains the belt and then goes on and fights Fury next year for a unification. Um, so that might be in his mind. That might be why he hasn't taken that trilogy fight. Yeah, I mean, they've had time to sort it out and for one way or another, one of the, uh, I think Wilder's camp didn't want to sort it out at some stage because uh, the deadline went a couple of weeks ago now. I think in terms of game plan, Fury definitely had a game plan. He changed up training, changing training with uh, Sugar Hill against Wilder in that second fight. And I think that would certainly complement him in a fight against 
Joshua. And I think he does have a big weakness and that's coming in close to them and coming in hard. And that certainly with Fury under Sugar Hill, that's something they'll definitely do. Yeah, but about that popularity as well, hasn't there? Because AJ's made some comments this week quite provocatively that have said he's the only British boxer who can sell out these big crowds uh, and that that's why they need to have the fight in, in Britain and that's why um, Fury wants to fight him. But actually, I, I would suggest, even though I'm not the biggest fan myself, that Tyson Fury's the more popular of the two, in this country at least. And in the US. Look, when he fought yeah. Wilder in his own backyard, had more fat fans supporting him. Yeah, I would completely agree. I think Joshua was was undoubtedly loved by a, a large amount of the of the British public that were well into their boxing. Um, but I think there was a lot of people at the same time that were always rooting for him to fail. There was always his critics that kind of said he was he was too stiff, he was too predictable. He just had that kind of one punch cannon, and they wanted to see him fail a little bit. With but with Tyson Fury, I feel like he's got a bit of a cult following, almost just because of the way he is in terms of. To his, his character I suppose that he brings to the fight like after he ends a fight he brings his wife into the ring and starts singing to her I think there's just a, a certain character that the British public have kind of warmed to um, despite his faults which Toby has pointed out on, uh, on multiple occasions he's not he's not the cleanest bloke um, but yeah I'd, I'd certainly say that Fury is probably the more popular boxer especially since um, since Joshua has taken that loss to Ruiz I think people more now than ever kind of deserted him after that you mentioned the cult of personality as well. Isn't that sort of a, a comparator to Conor McGregor in the same regard? Although Conor McGregor is obviously even more of a showman. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's just that, I don't know, love him or hate him, I think he sells out a show just because he's got that edge to his personality. And um, it's the same with McGregor. People are either buying a ticket because they want to see him get absolutely smashed to pieces or they're buying one because they want to see him win and then strut across the octagon. Um, it's that same kind of, I suppose, personality that, and McGregor knows that. I mean, when he was fighting Khabib and Khabib was, you know, shouting at him when they, uh, when they broke between rounds, he said, it's just business. He knows exactly why he's doing it. Um, and I suppose that's what builds up crowds, isn't it? That personality within a fighter. Yeah, and I think another reason that Joshua had that popularity for so many years is because he was still living off the back of the fame from the 2012 Olympics for quite a while. That was why he was such a household name and Fury's had to earn his way up a bit more because he didn't quite make it via that route. But AJ fights Kubrat Pulev this weekend. I think there's only one way this is going to end, isn't it? With an easy Joshua win. Any prediction on the round maybe or is it going to go all the way to a points decision? Well, it's an interesting one, isn't it? That there, uh, I'm, is he 39 now, Pulev? Uh, and there was this was meant to be a fight, I think it was meant to happen three years ago or more, uh, but then got aborted because of a, an injury to Pulev. So this has been a long time coming. Uh, but I'm, I'm really not sure how this one is going to go. You, you never you never can tell. We, we've seen shocks with obviously involving Povetkin and with Ruiz. So you can't rule anyone out at this division. I don't think, as as, as our friend Adam McGrawty always says, it only takes one lucky punch to do it, doesn't it? So you really don't know. But you, you'd have to go with AJ. Uh, I'm not sure on a round, maybe six or seven, but that would be a complete guess to me. Yeah, I'd, I'd say a similar thing. Like you say, Toby, I think Pulev is, is still a strong opponent. He's only lost once um, in his whole career, well, professional career anyway, I'm not too sure about the amateurs, and that was to Klitschko, I think it was in 2014. Um, so it would be a tough opponent, but if you look at the people he fought after that loss to Klitschko, you've got people like Huey Fury in there. They haven't been um, what you would kind of typically consider as, as top bracket opponents or some of the tougher heavyweights. Um, so he, he could be a bit of a surprise package, but... Um, I'm not too sure. And again, looking at the amount of stoppages he's had, he's a fighter that, that likes to go the diff, the distance. Sorry. Um, so coming up against against Joshua, who kind of displayed quite a good all round game to to go and beat Ruiz. So I'm just not sure he'd be out be able to outclass him or outpunch him um, to take the win. What do you think, Sam? I mean, I think it'll be big heavyweight fights anyway. When it's between people right at the top and not just a journeyman, they do tend to go quite into high rounds, if not all the way to the decision. Like, uh, in recent years, so I'll probably go for maybe around nine or ten. I think. I think that's probably quite a good shout, actually. I think they're probably both going to going to work behind the jab for most of the fight. And um, I'd even I'd even put Joshua points to be honest with you. Actually, he, he may stop, and if he does, I think Sam will probably spot him later round. But it could be another points win. Um, just nice and safe. Take take the fight kind of slow and steady. Um, ease his way through it, and then like I say, he might have a unification fight with Fury next year. 
Yeah, and uh, one thing, one difference at this fight that we've not had recently is there is going to be some fans in Wembley Arena. Frankie, have you been at the football since you've had any fans back at Pompey or you've been... Unfortunately not. No, I, was, I was meant to be there on Saturday, um, but I couldn't make it, which I was which I was quite gutted about because I secured quite a good win against Peterborough as well. Um, so I was, I was quite gutted that I couldn't be there. But by all accounts, um, the thousand or two thousand, I think it's a thousand, wasn't it, in the in the testing phase, um, was were were loud. They kind of made up for for the lack of the rest, and yeah, it was it was a brilliant day. Sorry. Did they have the Pompey Bell? You know, they always ring that bell. <laughs> Did they have that with just the thousand? I'm not actually sure whether they whether they let him in. I, I think if they didn't, everyone would have been quite grateful because no one in the front end <laughs> actually likes him. It's a bit of a, a misnomer, really. He's uh, he's not that that popular amongst Portsmouth fans. Well, for me personally, I went to the Reading game up on the weekend. Uh, I'll go again tomorrow and maybe on a Saturday if we get tickets. Apparently, they're not in that high demand. It seems they're a lot easier to get <laughs> than I first thought. Um, I was going to say, how, how have you managed to get two games in a row? <laughs> well, I really did see the ticket early, so I was guaranteed one. And then it, the, the rule it was, if you um, go to the first one, then you couldn't go to the second, but clearly not enough people signed up. Brilliant experience to be back. Very weird. Didn't like the fact that there was no halftime beers. Um, really takes away from the experience. Surprisingly loud, though, for the... Well, for most people, probably say for Reading fans in general, but for the amount were there... Um, the stewards were quite vigilant, though, on making sure that people were uh, sat down and had their masks on, which is... But it was good. It was nice to be back. It was quite special for us anyway, because we've had this good start. New manager playing well was very rare and uh, uh, for Reading in recent times, so it's weird. But, um, yeah, yeah, good to be back. Northampton, have they had any yet, Toby? Or no? They have, yeah. They've had uh, 1,100 back last weekend, and by all accounts, that went quite well, but... Currently, um, I'm in a tier three area, so I won't be going to uh, see them anytime too soon. I don't think because you can't move between tiers, unfortunately. But looking forward to um, looking forward to getting back to see them at some point. And and it's good that they've got fans back in. The only interesting thing, uh, perhaps as a negative here, is that for some of these clubs, particularly down in the lower leagues, you're actually uh, it's actually costing them money to stage these games uh, because the season ticket holders have already paid so they're not getting a great deal of money from the ticket sales because it's got to go to the season ticket holders first um, so the only money they're making is off the refreshments and as you said Sam they're not selling alcohol so it's only going to be a few you know pies and whatever else they can they can flog people so it's not a great deal of money I don't know if, even if they're doing programs maybe they are the amount of money you need, to uh, police these events and have the stewards there and all the rest of it. It's actually not, not um, I think for some clubs I've heard, it's not making them a great deal of money. So really they, they do need, you know, capacity to be upped as soon as, as is reasonably possible. But that all depends on how things progress with the virus and with the vaccine. Yeah, it does get renewed on the, uh, or reviewed, I should say, on the 16th of December. So eight days from as when we're recording this and hopefully some clubs will be up to tier. But as it's Christmas and everyone's travelling, if anything, that's going to be going backwards um, in a few weeks' time. So I have to see. But I, I agree. I think it is a struggle for smaller clubs. Um, that was what I questioned when they first said, oh, we can have X amount of uh, fans in. I'm, I'm not sure how a lot of them can cope with it, especially when they're having to employ probably more stewards per person than before to deal with all the COVID uh, guidelines. I hadn't actually considered that, um, Toby, before. Before you said that, I hadn't actually considered that that would be a negative point for it. Um, I Again, in my head, for some reason, I just thought that every every fan attending would be paying a ticket price. But obviously, like you say, they've, they've prepaid on the season ticket. I suppose the only silver lining is that they've now agreed the package, haven't they? Um, to give a certain yeah. amount of, of bailout money um, to clubs in Championship League 1, League 2. Um and I think even that's get, uh, judged on gate receipt, isn't it? Like sort of average average attendance. I think they dish it out like that. Yeah, yeah. that's going to be a lifeline, I think, for quite a few clubs. Particularly, and perhaps somewhat surprisingly, I think in the Championship, where they've been going for longer, haven't they, because of the restarted previous season, I think some clubs in pretty dire straits financially there. So that could be a, a real lifeline for them. Yeah, well, this tied into what I've been doing for my project. And apparently the reason that clubs haven't gone under, because we spoke about before, Toby, we thought they might buy Christmas, is because a lot of them from the Championship anyway are borrowing off of uh, next year's accounts. So they're just prolonging what may be. And um, 
For terms, like the government then. Yeah, and well, in terms of the package though, of what they've given is fifty million for leagues one and two. That, that's pocket change for the chancellor and the, the rest of the government, isn't it? It's nothing really, but. You can understand. I think leagues one and two and national leagues should have more than they have. Championship, I can understand why they don't, apart from maybe smaller clubs like Wickham, because most of them have got millionaire, multi-millionaire, billionaire owners. So I think in the same way the Premier League does. Yeah, you can see with the likes of Bolton and Charlton Athletic and whatever, you know, the wheels can fall off these these clubs very quickly, even even with richer owners. But no, I, I agree with you, Sam. So from football fans. Returning back to stadiums, we're going to return back to boxing now because I forgot something, and that is Logan Paul has a fight announced against Moneybags Mayweather. Um, just ridiculous, that's all I have to say on it. What's happened to boxing? <laughs> yeah, I think it's just a, a real, uh, obviously a publicity stunt, this one. But the thing is, a lot of people are saying, oh, um, they're only doing it for the money. I think that that might be the case with Logan Paul. I don't, I don't know. Logan I'd say Paul's more than Mayweather than Logan uh, Paul. Well, I was going to say Floyd Mayweather, he doesn't need the money. I would he argue with Floyd, with Floyd Mayweather, I would argue this is all about attention, publicity and remaining in the limelight. That would be my my feeling with, with Floyd Mayweather because he is, you know, at heart, he's a showman. He is somebody who's always, I would say, enjoyed the trappings of fame. Uh, so I, I think he's somebody that, as you say, wants to stay in the public eye and this is his way of doing it, these... Uh, exhibition fights. We saw it with obviously with Conor McGregor. We saw it with this that poor Japanese lad uh, who he fought for about three rounds for twelve million dollars and just absolutely, you know that that was almost like a comedy sketch. That one, it was so mismatched. Uh, and then you got this one, which presumably is going to be even worse because at least the Japanese guy was a professional uh, in some sort of fighting discipline, whereas Logan Paul is a professional YouTuber. So. I'm not sure how this one's even going to work, but I don't know what you think, Frankie. I don't know where you're, you're, you're more of a boxing purist. So I imagine you're pretty negative towards it as well. Yeah, I, I don't like it. I'm not a huge fan of the Paul brothers either. Um, so I don't right. like how much they're kind of encroaching on the sport, um, to be honest with you, especially because they've got the most frustrating thing is they've got the platform and they've got the money to make these kinds of things happen. Um, it, unfortunately, if you drop their name um, in with any big fighter, then people are most likely to buy. I reckon McGregor will probably end up fighting one of them as well because he's he's much like Floyd. Like you say, they're a showman. They enjoy the big stages. There's too much money in it to say no. And ultimately, when they're called out and challenged, I think it's a bit of a pride thing as well that they don't like to have people like, well, it was it was a case of Conor McGregor for for Mayweather before, or um, this time Logan Paul kind of speaking on their name and, and kind of calling them out without replying essentially but I'm not a fan of it it's going to be another exhibition fight which was fine for Tyson and Roy Jones Jr because it was it was, you know it's two blokes that are well past their day going at it so you don't want to see them you know beating each other half to death especially at their age but for, but for two obviously for me whether he's past his day as well and then for Logan Paul it just seems pointless I don't see what anyone's going to get out of it apart from payday Professionally, it's a lose-lose really for Mayweather, isn't it? Because if he wins, it's like, well, so what? And if he loses, it's, you know, the shock of the century, even though he's in his near, well, mid-40s now, isn't he? So uh, professionally, it doesn't make sense, but commercially and image-wise, it certainly does. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. Yeah, uh, well, uh, the money bag Mayweather really comes into play here but I actually think that he is doing it more for money or just as much as Logan Paul is because so many people have come out and said he spends money like he doesn't have it and we've seen how lavish his lifestyle is from social media and um, this is why he takes these fights is because he just parties and spends money he doesn't have and it prolongs doing that for that extra couple of years and I think that's all it is and yeah like we said the other Paul Jake Paul called out Conor McGregor after he beat Nate Robinson um just as embarrassing for me. Hopefully, once they have these two fights, providing the McGregor one does happen, that's the end of it, and uh, we can all move on, and there'll be another craze, and someone else is drawing in money, and we'll be done with it. That, that's my hope, anyway. Unfortunately, though, I think we're going to see both of those really put a foot in the door in terms of boxing, because they're at an age now um, where their kind of content creation side creation side is, is going to kind of fade away because no one's really going to be what want to be watching a late 20s to early 30s Logan and Jake Paul jump around when their hairline's receding and they're no longer cool to be like you know jumping around with teenage girls and stuff so I think we're going to probably see them try and age up and by doing that I think they genuinely are going to try and get into to fighting in combat sports um 
So I think as much as it is for money and for, and for clout and for publicity, I, I genuinely think that both of them will probably end up taking either some sort of talk show and or follow into something like boxing if they if they turn out to be half decent at it, which we haven't really seen a good indicator of yet because especially Jake Paul, he's got his opponents have got worse um, every time he's fought one. Arguably, is is the best person that he fought was probably Deji, and that was his first ever fight. Yeah, definitely. And with both the pools still looking to make the mark on boxing, we had a new F1 uh, winner. Uh, he won his first race out of 190, Sergio Perez, becoming first Mexican to do so since 1970. And there's a bit of an issue around his contract, isn't there, Toby? Yeah, it's an interesting one. This obviously Sergio Perez, you know, stalwart of, of F1 um, over the last several years. Um, won his first race with Racing Point. Um, this was a race where Lewis Hamilton was not present. He's he's currently isolating due to a COVID uh, test, positive test, but he's already won the uh, world championship for this year. So this was a real chance for some of the other drivers to, um, you know, have their name in the, in the lights uh, on this particular one in Bahrain. Um, and it was Sergio Perez who came through in the end. It, it looked like George Russell, who was um, Lewis Hamilton's last minute replacement in the Mercedes car, was going to do it. Um, and that was an interesting one because there's been all this praise sort of heaped on Hamilton and lauded. Uh, Hamilton's been lauded. But actually, if uh, George Russell had got in his car, a driver who never sat behind the wheel of the Merc before and gone and won the race, then it would have kind of made, you know, a few doubts in the minds of people uh, when they talk about Hamilton's ability and how that's the thing that drives him to success and whether it's not more the car. Um, but as it happened... Russell was in second and bearing down on, on Perez in the final few laps of the race and then suffered a puncture. And that was the end of his race. I think he finished ninth in the end uh, and Perez went on to victory. Uh, and also Esteban Ocon uh, in the Renault in second place. That was his first podium as well. So it was a, a day of firsts. Uh, and Perez obviously very emotional at the end. Uh, you know, this has been a dream for a long time for him. 190th race and he's finally won one. But as it is... Racing Point are not renewing his contract. So uh, his next race in Abu Dhabi, as things stand, last race of the F1 season, and it will be his last race in Formula One, which would just seem really sad for um, you know, a driver of his ability and quality who's just won his first race now. It would be, seem really, really sad if, if he couldn't find a seat in F1 for next year. Um, he says, I've got options for 2022. So he, he's thinking further down the line. But really, we don't want to see him uh, not in the sport in 2021. So it would be nice to see if someone finds a space for him in their team. Yeah, and George Russell has definitely put a huge stake into be Lewis Hamilton's racing partner for next year. Be interesting to see how he does um, in Abu Dhabi. So perhaps if he could come away with a win there, then I think that really does put serious doubts of whether it is Hamilton or the car, as you said, Toby. We do feel for Hamilton's partner, don't you, uh, Valtteri Bottas? I think Martin Brundle said in commentary for Sky, you know, if, if he, uh, what is it, if he didn't have bad luck, he'd have no luck at all. And I think that's the case. You know, he's just had a, a litany of problems all season. It's been a pretty terrible season for him. And he was always brought to Mercedes to be the number two driver and play second fiddle to Lewis Hamilton. That was always going to be the case. But the idea was that they were going to compete with each other and push each other on. Uh, as Hamilton and Rosberg used to do at Mercedes, and that just hasn't worked out for him. So it'll be interesting to see if he gets another chance, if he gets another year at Mercedes, um, or if this is it for him. And next week is his last race at Merck, uh, and they possibly bring in young George Russell or, or somebody else to replace him. I just want to nod quick to uh, F2, where Mick Schumacher won, but he became champion. He uh, actually finished in Bahrain in their race, 18th, but won the title by uh, 14 points over Britain's Callum Illot. And that is someone we will see in Formula One next year as he joins Team House. A, a Schumacher will be back in the sport as from next year. So I think he'll be the third because Michael Schumacher and Ralph Schumacher was also uh, a competitor for a while. Uh, so I think Mick will be the third, but uh, that'll be interesting to see how he gets on. I think there'll obviously be a lot of popular goodwill uh, for him as well. So best of luck to him. From someone out of form and in F1 with basically everyone with these unknown uh, races coming to the top of the podium, we have another player back in form in the darts in Michael Van Gerwen in what was a thrilling final in the Players' Championship. 
certainly I mean, was. We've we've had it. a lot of talk. We've had a lot of talk on this podcast about Michael Van Gogh and his issues with form this year. But he's cut, arguably come back to form at just the right time, uh, just before the World Championship, the last major before the World Championship, which is the Players Championship Finals. Uh, he won and he beat Mervyn King. Uh, the 54-year-old Mervyn King in the final, 11-10. It was an absolutely thrilling final and a magnificent run from Mervyn King, you know, rolling back the years, really. He's been a, a legend of darts for, for a long, long time and, and um, to get to another final is a fantastic achievement for him. And also that the prize money means it's uh, his ranking is, is going to be, I think he's up to world number 19 now. So he's, you know, he's got a nicer draw in the world championship and we'll be seeing him in events for some time to come now, we'd hope. Uh, I think I think he's got no plans to retire, so that's good. Um, and it was, a, yeah, a really good performance from him. There was some controversy because he was, uh, King is, is known as somebody who, has a few complaints about other players, shall we say. And he was complaining about Michael Van Gogh's celebrations throughout the match. Mervyn King is an old style darts player and, and uh, you know, it's all about respect and perhaps being muted and, and, and not sort of over-celebrating. Whereas Michael Van Gogh, you'd have to say, does like to celebrate, does like to scream and shout, and, and that can put certain people off. But of course, as is the way with gamesmanship in darts, um, as soon as it was clear that Mervyn wasn't happy with it, that only encouraged Michael Van Gogh, and it seemed to do it even more. That's certainly what it seemed like from the uh, from watching on TV. So yeah, a very good performance from Michael uh, going into the World Championship. Yeah, you could say uh, King was back to his prime. <laughs> very, very good with his Amazon delivery uh, previous career. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, finished eleven ten in the final. Michael Van go and beat Price in the semi, 8-11 there. And King had a good little run against Smith and Peter Wright to beat them to earn a stake in the final. But they will both be competing in the World Championship. Just want to talk about King before we get into that. It's 125 to 1 odds to come out on top of that. I know he's an outsider, but surely that's worth a couple of quid. Yeah, just runner-up in Players' Championship. I think that's, that's very... Um... Very good odds, actually, on him uh, in the in the kind of form that he's in. I think that comes from the fact that he's yet to win a tournament in the PDC. He's won stuff in the old BDO, but since he switched over, he's uh, made a number of finals, but he's never won anything in the PDC. So, uh, in terms of a, a TV title, so I think that's probably why the odds are like they are. But um, no, I, I definitely think he's in with a shout. Um, I can't remember who he's been drawn against, but I think um, it's not anybody that he should have to many difficulties against in the first round but yeah looking forward to seeing how he does in this in this rich vein of form and the same is true of Michael Van Gogh yeah who yeah. comes in at the favourite for this tournament at 5-2 to two, and uh, it could be facing some stiff competition for that number one spot Yes, and that's the big narrative of this World Championship is the battle for the number one ranking. Michael Van Gogh has held the world number one ranking in darts for an amazing seven years. Uh, but owing to his poor form, it's now under threat from Peter Wright, who is in second place, the world number two. And it all depends now who goes further in this World Championship. If Peter Wright can get to a later round than Michael Van Gogh in, he will become the new world number one in darts. And it's just interesting to, to hark back to mid-2019. Peter Wright was having form struggles of his own. He was the world number six. And he said, uh, he blamed it on the dip in form when he was world number six. And he said, his quote was, I will be back soon and chasing down Michael for that number one ranking. And a lot of people laughed at him at that point. They thought, you know, he, he was declining as a player. But now he's the reigning world champion and he's on the verge of being world number one. So the pressure is going to be on both of them. It's going to be very exciting and a very exciting subplot to the world championship itself. I just want to uh, briefly mention as well, Steve Beaton, uh, who is breaking a record. Uh, 57, I think he is now, 56 or 57. Uh, the 1996 world champion, he's making his 30th world championship appearance this year, breaking the record of 29 held by Phil Taylor. So we look forward to seeing Steve Beaton in action as well. Yeah, I just want to, before I get your prediction there, Toby, I'm just going to run through the odds of the rest of the favourites almost. We've got Gerwin Price at 5-1, to one, Bright 6-1, to one, Michael Smith 14-1, to one, Jose de Salso is the one who recently yeah, won the Grand, won Grand Slam, Slam. 16-1, yeah. to one, so he's banging form. My pick is going to be boring. I'm going to stick with my pick for the World Cup of Darts and the Grand Slam. I think he's in the best form. Gerwin Price, despite the last tournament, but, and 
the reason I say that over perhaps Van Gerwen is because we've seen Van Gerwen's form plummet, and then there was a I can't, I can't remember what tournament it was. It might be in the Grand Prix. He looked like he was going to do better again. Then he slumped again in the Grand Slam, and then he plays championships done well again. And I think it's time for another little bit of a slump. And I don't think he'll win this. Yeah, I, I think we, we're due an outsider to win the World Championship. It's been a few years now. You could arguably say Rob Cross was a bit of an outsider when he won it, but uh, I'd like to see an outsider win it. Just from those odds, I think Dimitri Vandenberg, he's not in the in the top half dozen, I don't think, for the odds, but he's certainly in with a chance if he can keep his form steady for the couple of weeks. Um, so I'd, I'd love to see him win it. Uh, but my pick personally has to be Peter Wright. I just think the form he's in, the determination he's got to reach the world number one ranking, I think, personally, despite the odds, I think he's the man to beat. Peter Wright, the reigning world champion, uh, and he would be my selection. But I'd love to see one of the youngsters, Nathan Aspinall, Dimitri Vandenberg, an outsider, uh, one of those two, hopefully, come in and do it. Yeah, the hype is certainly back the darts after what seems like a ridiculous amount of uh, tournaments crammed into the back end of the year. And we've had a similar fate in snooker, where we've had Neil Robertson somehow came out on top to beat Judd Trump, finished 10-9, having been 4-4-9-9, basically tied the whole way. Trump missed a straightforward pick to win his uh, to win another title at the UK Championship. Missed it. Neil Robertson, he felt his prey, and he uh, he latched onto it and won. Um, and Milton Keynes took away the 200k prize pot. Certainly, as I think it's the Masters now, isn't it? That's the um, the next tournament in. Um, I, I saw that was it the yeah the UK Open. I think didn't that finish at one thirty a.m. or something? It, it went on really really late. Um, that match, that final, yeah. Uh, and now yeah now we're into the Masters. Uh, so plenty of snooker on TV over Christmas. I have to say I haven't been following it too closely. I did see the the news of of that final, um, but uh, yeah, looking forward to hopefully catching some of that. Yeah, it was good to see Robertson win it. Growing up as a kid, he I don't know why, but I always really liked Neil Robertson as a player. Um, he said previously going into this week, he had a quite a few career regrets. And I bet it's uh, Trump that has the regret now after what was a really, really bad error. Biggest snooker player, though, of all. We've not really had a great quote from him for a couple of weeks. We've picked up on the same one, Toby, but I think you've got it in greater detail. So I'll let you take it away. Fire away. Ronnie O'Sullivan's quote. Ronnie O'Sullivan, yes, uh, this week um, saying, every sport needs characters. You look at athletics, you've got Usain Bolt, a huge character, a massive personality. In tennis, it's Nadal and Federer. But in snooker, there ain't a lot of personality there. It would be great for them to just come out and give it a little bit. I don't mean flash or arrogant, but just play with a bit of personality. Don't look like it's a pint of blood or standing there and the world is on your shoulders. Go out there and give it a go. Smash it up. And he also said, I look at some of these other players and it, and they are like dead. You need a good kick up the bum. Liven yourself up. Uh, and he also talked about Steve Davis, who he says ruined the game in the 1980s. Everyone else played and had a laugh, a joke and had a personality. Steve came, sorry, Davis came along and he was like a robot. As a person, he has a personality, but on the table, it was emotionless. So not very happy at all there. Uh, Rocket Ronnie um, keeping in the news. As I say, haven't seen him playing much uh, recently, but hopefully he'll be... Um, involved in in the Masters final and uh, as I say I usually watch the Masters final so it'd be nice to see him there uh, winning another one now Frankie is still there we've not let him go it's just these sports uh, he doesn't first so much I'm going to bring, relate this one to you though Frankie you're also a big fan of boxing a lot of personalities I think we've seen darts over the last few years start to make that transition where there are bigger characters and they're more well known and that has certainly seen an increase in popularity do you think that's something that happen, needs to happen in snooker and perhaps other sports? Yeah, I think so. I think it's important for, for drawing an audience. I think people uh, kind of connect with a sport um, because of one character. I'm sure you both have, well, or a team per se, but I'm sure you both have a kind of individual sporting icon or, or favourite, if you like, because of not just because of how good they were, but just because of kind of what they brought, brought to the sport and, and kind of what they brought to the game as well. So I think it's important. And um, funny, funny you should mention Steve Davis, actually, because I was actually watching um, a TV programme recently. I'm not, I'm not sure whether you've seen um, White Gold. And yeah. there's actually a sketch on that where they take the mick out of him for being 
renowned and boring. Uh, I think they get him in to kind of do a meet and greet in the showroom and he ends up making cups of tea because they just shove him off to uh, to do something else because he was so boring to meet. So <laughs> I don't think it was just Ronnie O'Sullivan that held that view that he was a bit dry. Yeah, absolutely. And um, our last kind of news and story and passing before we go on to the sports personality of the year is the horse racing with the Betfair Chase, I think we're going to start off with, aren't we, Toby? Yeah, just very briefly on this um, first Triple Crown race of the National Hunt season. Uh, the Triple Crown being the Betfair Chase, the King George on Boxing Day and the Gold Cup. And any horse who wins that is in line for a million pound bonus. Uh, who can win all three? Uh, and this year's Betfair Chase won for the third time by Bristol Demai, as the uh, commentator described him, the silver-coated king of Haydock. There's very few better than Bristol Demai around that track, uh, and he becomes just the third horse to win that um, particular race, the Betfair Chase, on, on three occasions. Corto Star and Q Card were the other two, both greats in their own right. Uh, so that was a big one. Uh, whether he's, you know, he's not had the best of success in the other two races, Bristol Demai. So it'd be interesting to see if he can go for the second leg of the Triple Crown in the King George on Boxing Day, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, but we'll have to wait and see on that one. Uh, but a great win for him. It, it was difficult ground again, but he just went to the front and none of the others, including the well-fancied lost in translation, uh, none of them could, could catch up to him. Uh, so a really good front-running victory. Should just mention about the uh, Gold Cup as well. Interesting with this. Gold Cup has uh, lost its sponsor, uh, Tomiko. Uh, they are pulling out of sponsoring this as from next year. And it just raises an interesting question about racing sponsorship because there's been a, uh, it feels a sort of effort from Cheltenham, and this is true of the Grand National as well, to not have a bookmaker sponsor the Gold Cup and to try and get a sort of a blue chip uh, big corporate sponsor uh, to sponsor it instead now. Uh, but as I say, Tomiko just dropped out as from next year. So it'll be interesting to see if they can find someone. Obviously, horse racing can be divisive among people. It's, it's not the most popular sport necessarily for big companies to sponsor because of that reason. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if they can find a big corporate sponsor for it or not. Yeah, and from yeah. horse racing world, they are represented at the Sports Personality the Year Awards with Frankie Dettori in there. Going to start with Tyson Fury, though. He come out of uh, his video that we've seen all across social media saying he doesn't want to be included in Sports Personality of the Year because he doesn't do it for fame, doesn't really believe in award shows, etc. Is that the case, Frankie, or is it just because he knows he's not going to win it? Um, I think it's it's a little bit deeper than that. I think, obviously, as, as me and Toby have discussed before, Fury has... Um, a bit of a kind of past, should we say, and he's made a few choice comments over the years. And I think what kind of comes along with sports personality of the year is, is not just kind of a reflection of what you've done within sport, but also a, a kind of look at how someone's conducted themselves outside of the ring, pitch, court, whatever, whatever that would have been. Um, and I think Tyson Fury's actually been a little bit clever here in trying to withdraw himself from the list because if, if he's in those conversations for for serious serious kind of winner of sports personality of the year, I think a lot of, of the negative press that he's got may well be dug up again and people may counter the fact that people are saying, oh, Tyson Fury deserves it with by bringing up some of the previous kind of negative press and, and sort of negative things that he, he said before. So I think he's been quite tactical in the fact of trying to withdraw himself from that list um, just really so a lot of that doesn't get dug up. Great to see Holly Doyle in there as well, one of the six nominees, Sam, uh, the uh, jockey, female jockey, and she's just won Times Sportswoman of the Year as well. Uh, I think she's probably going to be an outsider for this award, but it's nice to see her in there, nice to see racing represented. But it's a really difficult one to call this year, I think. You've obviously got Lewis Hamilton, who's come second before. Uh, a lot of people think he's due one. Uh, and, and has a big following. You've obviously got Tyson Fury as well, despite his comments. So I think a lot of people would like to see win it. Uh, and you've got Jordan Henderson uh, with the Liverpool vote and potentially England fans as well. Um, so I think you've got three big hitters in there as well. And then perhaps Ronnie O'Sullivan, Holly Doyle and Stuart Broad on the, on the outer of, of that. But it'd be fascinating to see who wins. For me, it's a bit of a joke. There's no Marcus Rashford, so I'm not even going to take it seriously on this award. I know his sporting achievements on the pitch haven't been as great as the rest of them, but that, that's surely not what the whole award is about. Uh, other than that, I probably think it's probably going to go to the favourite, Lewis Hamilton. I don't know what are your guys' opinions on who you think and who you would like to see win it. 
I've said this before. My personal view is that they should have Sportsman of the Year and Sportswoman of the Year uh, because you, you've essentially got women's sport and women's sporting people competing against the men for this award. And in terms of exposure, men's sport just has far more exposure than women's sport. So it just doesn't seem fair to me that they could be. And that comes down as well to how few uh, female winners we've seen. Now, Holly Doyle is the exception to that because she competes alongside men. There, there's no women's, uh, you know, jockeys horse racing. It, it's, it's male jockeys versus female jockeys. So she's in there as somebody who's competed alongside the men. But in general, I think they should have two awards. I don't think they lose anything from having two awards in my view. But for me, it's got to be either Holly Doyle or Jordan Henderson on merit. In my personal opinion, those are the two who should win. But I think Lewis Hamilton will win. I don't know about you, Frank. You always get your opinion on this, Toby, because I'm not sure where you would stand on Lewis Hamilton. But obviously, he's had a bit of um. This it's a tricky one. This award because it, it's it's kind of how you see it. Is do you see it from their actual sporting achievement, or do you see it from their general character within the sport? And I think that's where Sam's coming from with with Marcus Rashford. But Hamilton again is is being someone that. I don't know, the, the kind of tax evasion, has he been the best kind of model uh, sports professional over the years? So I would like to see either, like say, Holly Dorr, I, I don't know an awful amount about her, but considering she's broken a lot of her own records um, this year, I think that's quite a phenomenal achievement if someone sets that and then actually raises their game higher. Or Jordan Henderson, who I think has been fantastic captain for Liverpool. He, they've obviously done great things over the last couple of seasons and I think he's he's been a model professional with, with his charity work and, and what he does off the pitch as well. Um, so for me, I, I agree with you, Toby. Those, yeah. those two nominees, I think, are, are spot on for who should get it. Another thing I know you're agreement. annoyed about, Toby, is the fact that there's no darts player there. I think if there, any year there should have been one, there should have been a darts player this year. The amount of sport that they've competed in compared to other people has been ridiculous this year. Um, I think it's a bit of a cop out to only have six, to be honest. I think that we normally have ten, and I don't. I know there's been disruption. I know there's been disruption uh, to sport. There has been a lot of disruption, but there's still been a lot of sport played. And I think, as you say, no dart player in there. Uh, lots of other sports unrepresented. I think it would have been nice if we could have had the 10 nominees in there just for the, you know, the sake of other people getting a chance to have a nomination. Yeah. Final piece of news, though, before we start to wrap up, because we're short for time, is we've had the sad passing of the voice of golf, 89 years old, Peter Aulis, as it pronounced, Aulis, first appeared on the BBC in 1961, won 31 tournaments a professional. And as I say, he was synonymous with golf and it being on TV. First segment now, we'll go into... The Sporting Question. Yes, uh, this week, so as ever, guest versus host. Um, and the current score after 10 rounds now is two all. So you're playing for the lead for the guests here, Frankie. Uh, it's one question to each of you this week. Uh, and the topic is on all-time Olympic medal countries. Uh, so we're looking at the all-time leaderboard for Olympic medals. Uh, so we're going to go for continents. And I'll give you three options, but I want to know which continent, sorry, which country on the continent has the most Olympic medals all time. So I'll go to you first, Sam, because I think it's your turn to go first on this one. Uh, and it's Africa. And your three are Kenya, Ethiopia or Nigeria. Which country has won the most Olympic medals of all time out of those three? I feel like it should be Kenya or Ethiopia just for the running. Uh, obviously, you get a lot of um, West African runners. Nigeria probably come up a bit more in recent years, probably picked up a few footballing ones and etc. But um I'm gonna go with Ethiopia. Correct answer was Kenya. I'm sorry, you you were equivocating there, you nearly got it, yeah. but it was Kenya. Um Ethiopia's second. And for you, Frankie, it's Asia, and your three are South Korea, Japan, or India. Ooh. Who has I, the most I, was, I was expecting China to be in there and I thought that was going to be easy grab there. I should just say, actually, yeah, I should just say this is other than China. I forgot to right. say that. China. So, sorry, South Korea, uh, India or Japan, did you say? Yes. Who has the second most? And they're quite a way ahead, I think, of, of the others. I'd have to say Japan. Um, I'm not... I've, I'm not 
I don't remember many Indian successes, but that might just be me being ignorant. Um, so I'd say Japan. You're right. It is Japan. It's Japan, then South Korea, a few down, and then India, quite a way down. Well done on that one. So, Sam, 3-2 three, two, three, two to the guests, uh, I'm afraid. But we've got the Christmas special coming up, haven't we? So there's a chance that you could even it up before the end of the year. Yeah, it looked like I was crawling it back for a bit, and I haven't. Speaking of Christmas, <laughs> though, that kind of... Um, I'm genuinely <laughs> upset. No, it's just I'm just fed up about crap I am at them. Like, we've done about 12, <laughs> and I didn't win any for the first seven or something. Not Maybe not 12, I don't... But- I don't do it on purpose, I'm, I, I'm sure. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway, Christmas ties in. A niche sport from around the world. Which is going to be brushed over quickly, which is Yugi Gassen, which is a basically a snowballing tournament held in Japan. There's also been spin-offs in Finland, Australia, apparently, um, Alaska, and that's it. Oh, and Canada. Um, so yeah, it's like it's like a scene out of Elf, really. There's no real rules in it other than kind of what you get in paintballing. And we'll move on to the sporting highlight now because we've scrapped the time. Um, I'm going to go first with the swimming records. I don't know if any of you have seen this. Adam Peaty, the British swimmer, he essentially broke three records in Budapest over one weekend. He broke his 50-metre record, uh, breaststroke record twice. In the heats, it was 26.10, and in the semi, 25.95, and then also set a new world record for the 100 metres, which is 55.41, and is my sporting highlight of the fortnight. So just because he broke so many records in one go. I think mine uh, is going to have to be, we've already mentioned it, Sergio Perez winning the uh, Grand Prix for the first time in 190 races, you know, fulfilling a lifetime's ambition for him. And I think that was a brilliant moment for all involved. I think mine, predictably, is from boxing. Um, Just the Tyson-Roy Jones Jr. fight. It wasn't a classic, but it was just phenomenal to see someone like Mike Tyson actually fight in um, in my lifetime. Um, so, yeah, that was quite special, even though it was an amazing, amazing bout. Uh, it's nice to have not have a football in one. So, um, for once, usually there's at least two football in one. So, that was good. But that concludes it for the podcast this week. We'll be back with a Christmas special edition in the next few months, a uh, few weeks even, few months. Few months. Um, and then we're going to take a prolonged break for a bit before we're back in the new year to smash it out in a change of format and scheduling, shall we say. Thank you very much for joining me as always, Toby, and to you, Frankie, making your debut on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And me. And uh, to those listening, we'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Please follow us on any streaming services you use to listen to podcasts. And follow us on social media. Twitter is at Ultimate Sport P and Instagram is The Ultimate Sports Podcast. So you don't miss any future sports news or guest episodes. And we'll see you next time.